If you're new here this morning, we have been digging into this Gospel of Mark to look at the life of Jesus. But let's begin by reading at verse 18 in chapter 2. I'll also put it on the screen. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If one does, a patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, there is a phrase that I suspect that the majority of people here have heard, and it's a words that impact churches, organizations, businesses, schools, even families. And it's seven short words, and let me put them on the screen for you this morning. We've never done it that way before. Seven short words that's impacted countless organizations. Now, understand, we recognize that they're connected to change and about doing things different and sometimes moving away from the past to something new. Now, now here's where I do need to be fair, because I think we can think negative of this all the time. I understand that when people use these words, sometimes they're not uh, spoken out of a negative context. What they're really saying is that, you know what, the, the past has meant so much to me. And the change is difficult in my life, and I'm kind of admitting that. So I think that's true for some people and even within a church. But for others, there's another way to look at it. And other people, it's like this. I'm not open to new things. I don't want to change. And what you're telling me to do different is causing me to not like you right now. And I believe functionally, though, when you look at this kind of a person, the, really the issue is about control. And, and it's about losing influence and losing power and losing kind of the grip of, of control in one's life. But folks, let me point something out. This second type of person is what the religious leaders of the day were saying about Jesus. See, Jesus is coming with new teaching, new ideas. He's challenging the current systems. And the things that Jesus is doing and saying, I think they would come away, or at least inside, we've never done it that way before. I think back to a couple weeks ago. This is happening over and over. Jesus, remember, he, he goes and he touches a leper. And he wasn't supposed to be touching them. And people were watching. And I suspect thinking and going, wait a minute, he's doing it different. Even last week, spending time with tax collectors and sinners and calling those people to be his disciples. See, for the religious leaders, Jesus was way over the top. He was rejecting this new way, rejecting what, what, what they were doing. And I think that as they looked at him associate with those sinners, 
they were just, they were repulsed. Kind of like us spending time with our IRS people. We have any IRS people in here? Hopefully not. <laughs> but today, the same attitude, folks, continues. Look at verse 18. Let me put that on the screen. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do, you, do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, we've never done it this way before. This isn't how it's supposed to work. You know, Jesus, if you're really religious, do you understand here, as they're looking to Jesus, they know he's the point person here. They know he's leading the disciples here. And he's ignoring the good tradition of fasting. Jesus, you're the leader, and now you're changing things on us. And by the way, I really think there's an accusation here toward Jesus of going, Jesus, are you spiritually flawed? I think they're accusing him in a roundabout way. But understand here, fasting wasn't a bad thing. We'll look at it more at the end of the sermon here. It wasn't evil. It was a, it was a good thing. It was important. And I'm going to argue that's actually important for today. But folks, their tradition of even good things like fasting get in the way of seeing and knowing Jesus. See, I think that's an application for us. Let me throw out the quest, first question on the, on the bulletin outline there. See, what are the good things that we're hanging on to that actually can get in the way of knowing and following Jesus? Fasting was a good thing. But the attitude of its importance got in the way from these disciples and these people, religious people, of actually looking and going, who is Jesus? This is about Jesus. See, I think it reminds us that things can distract us and get in the way of focusing on Christ. Over the years, uh, to throw one example out, you, I've said this before. Sometimes the style of worship, even in a church, gets in the way of seeking Jesus. We want this style or that style. It can get in the way. But over the years, I've also seen that true with other ministry forms and, and how you do ministry. People get trapped into believing that a certain way is the right way. And it's the only way. It's what I grew up on. What I used to do and, and, and what I learned when I was young. And, and it was kind of like, if it was good enough for Grandma, it must be good enough for the Trinity. See, see we disciple people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Method. Is, is I think, what we do at times. Matter of fact, an example, as I was walking through this, I thought of previous church and the leadership in the women's ministry came to a place where we, we quit mops and actually did a different thing in, in its place. And the stir that it caused was really quite unbelievable for me. Mops had become sacred. And I think in some ways was actually getting in the way of meeting and loving Jesus. 
See, there's oftentimes we create structures and traditions in our life that can get in the way of knowing Jesus. Matter of fact, it can go beyond the church, I think, as well. But in this text, fasting by the Pharisees was getting in the way of knowing him, of following him. And yet fasting is good. It was a good tradition. And in our lives, we have to admit, lots of traditions aren't bad. They're good. But we can get locked into those things and into some beliefs that are, I think, at times extra biblical. And they really don't come from a clear directive of God's word. But Jesus comes along and you notice he disturbs things. Whether it's touching a leper, spending time with those sinners. See, he kept disturbing the status quo. And that's where I think we got to apply it. There's good things that we do, even in a church that can lose focus. And I think we got to admit this. If our meaning and our joy is from those good things and not having a relationship with Jesus, then we got to say something is wrong. And I think we can find ourselves justifying things, even about the good things, if we hold on to them so tight. And we never ask the question, is something holding me back from really get to know get to know Jesus? You know, it can be our families. It can be our activities. You know what? Even a marriage can get in the way and become an idol to follow Jesus and to know Jesus. See, the truth of this passage is that there is a person that deserves our utmost attention, our greatest attention, and his name is Jesus. And the spiritual fasting was getting in the way of these people. But let me push farther into the text. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. See, folks, they knew that Jesus was claiming to be more important than fasting. That would have rubbed these people wrong, the Pharisees wrong. And the fasting, as good as it was, was to be set aside for a period of time. For a period of time. But let me give you the key point here for your notes to fill in that slot there. Number one, it really fits, comes out of the meaning. As we look at the whole text here, a new life in union with Christ cannot be defined by certain forms of religious activities. See, when one looks at our life, do they, do they see a dynamic love relationship with Jesus? Or do they see a set of forms, a set of rituals, some, some God speak? And that's the essence of our faith. See, I think on the, we can live that on the outside, but do we have a dynamic heart-to-heart relationship with God? Is that true of our lives on the inside? That was one of the points that Ron Frost a couple, three weeks ago was talking about. But here in this passage, the Pharisees are going after Jesus and his disciples. You're not doing the right religious stuff. You're not fasting. Now here's where I got to give you a little bit of history of the fasting. It had changed 
Okay, it had changed by the time it got to Jesus. It was technically, it was a law that was in the Old Testament. It comes out of Leviticus chapter 16. And they were commanded to fast for one day at the Day of Atonement. That was a command that they were supposed to be a part of. But it began to change over a period of time. And especially as I was reading this, and during somehow, some reason, it was when they were in captivity in Babylon. And right away, kind of after that. But it began to shift from what it originally started to a place where it began to get a merit system. If we fasted, we were getting some spiritual brownie points, is what happened with Israel. And then it escalated even more to the point where, at the time of Jesus, it was really a, a pious, a righteous symbol And the Pharisees actually had commanded, you need to fast twice a week in order to really be spiritual. Now, here's the tension. We can look back and we can point our finger at the Pharisees. But isn't it easy to create forms that somehow we believe the forms is what defines righteousness and spiritual maturity? If we do these things, then we're righteous, we're growing toward maturity. And if we stay away from those things or the bad things, I I, I even think at times, for example, in the area of music, we go, this music is holy, this one is in a bad category. Even this, in terms of the Bible version, at times we get stuck there. About twice, about every other year, here's what happens, even all the way back into Baxter years and years ago. But every other year, a guy would come through, he would would bring a packet of literature, and he wanted all the pastors to read the literature, and the literature really surrounded why the only true Bible was the King James Version. That was the true scriptures. See, that's the challenge. We create structures of this is spiritual, this is not. Now, I also have to say this at times. People want to dismiss structures and traditions and throw them out the window. And I believe it's a bit more popular in the millennial generation. They don't like the church structures of the day for some of them, and they want to toss them out. But the challenge is we can become prideful of having no forms. And, and understand this, if you're, if you're creating, we're not going to have any traditions, no structures, that becomes a structure. Just think about that. It becomes a form. But see, Jesus is challenging the forms of the day. But let me kind of drill down even personally at times what we do. See, there's this place where we create lists in our minds of which is better, which is worse. And let me just put a couple on the screen here. We have this good things list and then the bad things list. The good things, and I just put a couple here, you know, go to church and we can fill in. We have a whole bunch of those. And some of them might be even biblical. And then we have this, these bad structures And like gambling, and you can have a whole list of them as well. But understand, we can have these lists without a relationship with Jesus. Example, growing up, 
um, for the first probably 10, 12 years of our of our my growing up years, we weren't supposed to be playing with playing cards. Everybody know what playing cards are? Okay. You know those cards that were used for gambling? Um, now my mom wasn't didn't have so much of a problem with it. But my dad really did, so we'd hide him in the drawers where he wouldn't find them. It was, it was part of the piece to that. But the challenge is, well, guess what happened? Playing cards are bad. Remember what the Christians did on the other side? Rook cards. Anybody know what rook cards are? Same number of cards, four suites there, you know, that, those type of things. You see what we do? Even growing up for me, going to a bowling alley initially was bad. Why? Because they served beer there. And we didn't, didn't want to get tainted from the world. But depending on when and where you grew up, almost everybody creates these lists. And I recognize some can be rooted in Scripture. And we live our lives and we base our righteousness on the lists without a relationship with Jesus. We can do that. But I also believe this as I was pondering this piece, that at times when people are trapped into sin, uh, you think of these lists and what they end up doing is they know it's sin, but what they do with that behavior, they avoid putting it in either category. I'm just not going to put it in either one so I can just keep doing what I want to do. And understand that's the flesh going, we want to maintain the right to define what sin is or isn't. But it's so easy for us individually to create a system, create forms that define our righteousness. And I think we just have to admit that. But it's interesting here that Jesus comes along and he begins to push it and he uses the illustration of the skins the goat skins for the, and the wine skins. Now back then, I don't know if you realize, but what they did is they would, they would uh, strip the skin off of a goat and they would keep it as whole as possible, as big as possible, and they would partially tan it and then they would use that to pour their liquids in and store their liquids. And with age, those skins would, be, would start to become hard and they would lose their elasticity. But Jesus points out here that to put new wine or fresh from the wine vat into the old wineskins, it would mean inevitably that the fermenting wine would burst the old skins. So wine was put into unused wineskins because of the elasticity and the strength then as the wine fermented. But the point of this illustration here of what Jesus is talking about is that a new life in Christ cannot be confined to some legalistic forms. The old wineskins. See, the new patch on the old, or the, that new patch represented Jesus. Jesus was saying, it will not work to take and put a relationship with me on top of your traditions. He's going, no. People wanted to somehow justify their traditions through Jesus. And he's going, absolutely not. He's saying, people, to think that something hasn't changed, that it's different now. He's saying, 
You've got to understand this. It's different. I am here. I'm here. Put it away. Your pious traditions. I've come because I'm the groom. And there's a wedding taking place. A wedding feast. There's a party. Why would you fast when we should be having a party? You catch this with Jesus, how he's pushing them. And he's saying that he's here, and it's, I think we can assume, because we understand a fuller picture of the bridegroom, this idea that he is calling out a bride. He's preparing a bride for himself. And why would you be fasting during that time as he's looking to call out his disciples and begin a movement of building a church and building the bride? So let me put up that question again, just what good things are we hanging on to that get in the way of knowing and following Jesus? Now, I need to bring a point here, in here, um, and it goes back to some of the, the, the challenges that Ron Frost was here about a month ago. Some of you came out of his time going, whew, my head is spinning a little bit, um, but it's interesting that in my conversations with him, I think one of the things that we do is that for many Christians, we want our faith to be really simple. We want three bullet points that will define our faith and what it's all about. We want to say a different, we want a simple relationship with Jesus. We want a simple definition of faith. And folks, can I tell you, if we're moving down that path, that's spiritual laziness. Because let me ask you a question. If you're married right now, is your relationship with your spouse simple? The first service, I had a couple of people elbowing and going, absolutely not. In the parenting relationship, parents, would you describe that relationship as just simple? Is any relationship simple? And you go, why would we expect to have a simple relationship with the God who created this universe? It's not simple. We need to recognize that. But here's where we need to pause and move on and ask the question, why were they feasting or fasting? See, at times I think we do a quick read of the New Testament. We conclude that Jesus really is doing away with fasting here any concept of it. But I want to tell you, that's not the case. See, at the end of verse 20, he assumes the continuation after he leaves. He isn't dismissing fasting. Matter of fact, I think in many ways, he's elevating it a bit. Let me put it on the screen, Matthew 6.16. Again, Jesus speaking. Look at what he says. When you fast... Do not look somber as hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. So here, when you fast, but he's talking about the wrong attitudes toward fasting. He's giving an example how not to do it. Not to draw attention to the self, looking somehow people will look at us and go, boy, you're spiritual because you're fasting. See, it's about the motive. You know, and, and here in, in Matthew 6, people wanted to be noticed. But in Mark 2, it says he's assuming that it's going to continue after he leaves. 
Now, I have to be honest here, intellectually, biblically honest, that fasting wasn't the central issue in the teachings of Jesus. He never commanded us to practice fasting, and neither did he give any regulations about fasting at all. He just, he didn't do that. But what is fasting? In the technical sense, it's this. It's giving up food to refocus on the spiritual things of life and to focus on who God is. But let me just say what fasting is not. It is not a spiritual diet. It is not some purging that we're supposed to do on a regular basis. It's not about losing weight. Matter of fact, I think those he would put in the wrong mode of category. See, but it is setting aside food. Now, some of you hear that word food and you're thinking about what's in the crock pot when you get home, maybe. I don't know. But for some as well, some people think, well, it's to punish our bodies. So therefore, we get something spiritual and mystical out of it. No, that's not it at all. Let me give you the point of fasting. Point number two, fasting is about spiritual feasting. Fasting is about replacing the desire for food with a desire for Christ. It's about worshiping Christ. It's about hearing from Him. It's about knowing His love in a deeper way. See, even in the commandment to fast at atonement, it was about a longing, Messiah, would you come? It was a prayer of going, fasting, Jesus, would you come back? See, it's about creating a longing for Jesus and feasting on him, tasting of his goodness. Even in the early church, it continued in the early church as well. But it was always, even in the midst of persecution, it was, Jesus, come, we need you, we want you, we want, want you. Now, as I was studying this, I, I, uh, there's a sense where I would say I don't do it very often. But in real, realizing that maybe I de- need, need to do it more, I think that's true for me. But there's a reality that it is a good thing. He's not dismissing it here. But here's how I want to end. Point number three. How about you considering doing a fast? Some of you maybe do it regularly. I don't know. But the principle of fasting to feast on Jesus can be a very good thing. Setting aside the temporal and feasting and gazing to Christ. See, that's a good thing. Here's some suggestions. How about taking a lunch and not eating that lunch and going out to the car and just praying, opening your Bible, singing, asking that he would fill you with his love. And do it during the time that you normally would spend that lunch hour eating. Maybe you want to do a longer fast. Now, I recognize that some people have medical issues. You might need to check with your doctor. But I've known people who would fast for two weeks. I know a number of people who have gone on a 30-day fast, just juice and water. Is he inviting you to a fast? 
But I think if Jesus were here, he would actually go wider on fasting. I really do. Uh, a week ago, we were in the Los Angeles airport, and we were waiting for the train. And remember how years ago you'd have a couple hours to kill at an airport, and you would go to one of these things that had newspapers? Remember how you would buy that newspaper or magazine, you'd sit down and begin to read? Well, almost no one, you hardly ever see a newspaper at an airport anymore. But do you know, do you, you know what you see? Sitting in rows. Everybody looking down on their phones and their pads. I have to admit I was doing a bit too. As I counted, I started counting in the rows and going down the rows of people and what they, what they were doing as they were waiting for that plane. And do you know that it was running at least 8 out of 10 were on their phones in an intense way, looking down, looking at, at what they were doing, whether they were communicating to people or not. But here's where I think Jesus might wide it. What about a texting fast? Where you turn off your phone for a while, or an electronics fast. See, even young people, you guys text all the time. What about just stopping for a day, taking up the amount of time that you have and and pulling back and going, okay, I'm just going to read my Bible. What about other Facebook fasts? People are in line all the time with Facebook. What about feasting on Jesus for a while that you've just said, no, I'm going to say no to the temporal and and I'm going to feast on Jesus for a while? A TV fast. I know some parents who do this on a regular basis. And by the way, if you're a parent with young kids, have a discussion about fasting. And maybe it's from electronics perspective. Maybe you do that already, of of, of setting that aside. But put in the feasting part on Jesus. How about a Viking fast? Ooh, now you're hitting home here for some people. (laughs) That we actually just put away the game for three hours and we take our Bibles and something else and we just, we pray, we journal, we spend time feasting on Jesus. And then we got to get the deer hunters in here too. Uh, I I think there's some deer hunters think I go out to my stand and I fast. I don't eat anything. But but in order for you to fast in a deer stand, I I would say this, um, you got to get rid of your gun and go put it in the car. Because if you have it next to you, your senses are going to be up for the deer, not the Holy Spirit. Okay, I think that was, that's a fair statement. But you might want to do that. Take an hour and just take your Bible with you and, and just put the gun in the truck and sit down and have a date with Jesus, feasting on him. See, that's a challenge. Jesus wants us to come to him and to feast on him, and that's where fasting can be a very good thing. But is there a longing to know Jesus more in our hearts, or are we content with our life the way that we live it? See, I've come to believe at times that we can get content with our life, and that actually works against feasting on Jesus and a fast We're contented, so why do we need Jesus? I got everything's going well. But Jesus wants us to feast on him, 
to seek Him. And He wants us to help us increase our longing for Him. You catch that? He wants us to help us and He stills within us as we do some of these things and He gives us a greater attraction. Go, God, I want to seek You. I want to know You. I want to be with You. I want to stop nibbling at my relationship with You. See, fasting can empower us seeking Christ. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up or those that are going to serve communion. And in many ways, I would remind you that this table is about a feast. Do you realize that? It was started as a feast to remember, to pause and to feast on Jesus and what he did on the cross. I'm going to ask the guys to hand out the bread that represents his body. And would you just hold that? And we want to participate together in that. But just pause for a few minutes as, as they're passing it out and say, Jesus, I want to feast on you. I want to look to you. Just ponder that and talk to him in these few minutes. Mm-hmm.